I'm Kim Raycon, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academics podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Deborah Plant. Dr. Deborah Plant is an African-American literature and Africana studies scholar and is the author of the introduction and afterword for Zora Neale Hurston's Barracoon. In 1927, Zora Neale Hurston traveled to Plateau, Alabama to visit 86-year-old Cujo Lewis, a survivor of the Clotilda, the last slave ship to make a transatlantic journey from West Africa. Illegally brought to the United States, Cujo was enslaved 50 years after the slave trade was abolished. At the time, Cujo Lewis was the only person alive who could recount this part of the nation's history. Cujo's story is one of a childhood in Africa, being taken captive by his own people, the Middle Passage, years spent in slavery in the United States, and the end of the United States Civil War when he gained his freedom. Unable to return home, Cujo and his fellow freedmen founded Africatown. In her own introduction, Hurston writes, how does one sleep with such memories beneath the pillow? How does a pagan live with a Christian god? How has the Nigerian heathen borne up under the process of civilization? I was sent to ask. As a note for listeners, throughout our conversation, Dr. Plant refers to Cujo by his given African name, Kasola. The posthumous first-time publication of Zora Neale Hurston's Barracoon, with Cujo's voice recounted in his vernacular, is a seminal moment in American literary, historical, and anthropological documentary culture. Barracoon is on sale May 8th in hardcover from our imprint, Amistad. So this morning on the phone with us, we have Dr. Deborah Plant, an African-American literature and Africana studies scholar and the author of an introduction and afterword of Zora Neale Hurston's Barracoon. Deb, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, you're quite welcome. It's my pleasure. One of the things that Zora Neale Hurston once said is, I know that nothing is destructible. Things merely change forms. When the consciousness we know as life ceases, I know that I shall still be part and parcel of the world. And it seems like the upcoming publication of Barracoon continues Hurston's presence in our current in our current times. Yes, you're absolutely right about that. Um, because nothing does die. Nothing dies. Everything does change, transform. And, you know, even though... For years, we sort of lost Hurston and access to her works. And here, at this point in our history, uh, we again can read her and read works that uh, she published, she had published during her lifetime. But not only that, we have these posthumous works like Barracoon. So yes, she continues and her presence is still very vibrant with us. What do you think Barracoon's importance within Hurston's own canon is? <laughs> well, it's in terms of her own canon, first of all, it keeps changing, mm -hmm. uh, mainly because we uh, have these posthumously published works. And one of the things uh, it's going to do 
is to have us think again about Hurston as a social scientist. Mm -hmm. Because uh, this work, Barracoon, is a narrative she collected from Kosala, and it speaks to Hurston's genius as as a social scientist, as a cultural anthropologist, ethnographer. You know, we know her best as a writer, as a novelist, and this work is going to have us reconsider her in terms of her genius as a cultural anthropologist. And what do you think Barracoon will do for sort of the larger literary and scholarly canon, thinking not just in terms of, of literature studies, but also anthropological and historical studies? Well, that's just it. It's going to affect all of those disciplines mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, again, social science, anthropology. You know, and the anthropologists uh, have only recently begun to claim uh, Zerna Hurston, but they've begun to do that. And so we, we have a, a growing appreciation of her in the discipline of, of anthropology. That's going to, this book is going to just uh, help us to really expand that understanding of her and, and, and deepen our appreciation of her contribution in those areas. Uh, Barracoon is also a historical document. So in terms of history, we're going to be thinking again about uh, what we call slavery. Uh, I call it bondage or captivity, uh, but, you know, the, the shorthand term for that is slavery. And we have in Barracoon uh, a point of view that is unique in the fact that Kosala and he's also called Cujo Lewis, mm -hmm. but uh, Kosala, his uh, African name, he, he gives us a point of view that includes memory of his being captured, memory of his being held in, in a barracoon, memory of his being uh, transferred on uh, the Clotilde into American society as one held in bondage in what we call slavery. And so that's going to give us another understanding about this history. And I think even more deeply a, 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 an understanding of what people as individuals experience. So often we talk about uh, slavery and we talk about slaves in a very uh, collective uh, sense. Mm -hmm. And we tend to lose the significance of the fact that people who were uh, trafficked over here into the Americas, they may have come collectively, but the the journey was an individual journey. Individual human beings experienced those journeys. And uh, Kosler's narrative gives us a real deep sense of what that meant on an individual basis for a human being to experience that kind of trauma and terror. One of the ways that Barracoon separates itself out if we sort of if we sort of put it into the into the slave narrative category of of documents and, and literary texts. If one of the ways that it separates itself out from from that genre is because of the individuality of it, what are other ways in which you think Barracoon separates itself from other kinds of slave narrative? We can say that. Kosala 
Tupelo was not a quote unquote slave. That to begin with, right? Because the narratives, the majority of the narratives that we have are of individuals who were already born into the condition of servitude. Uh, Kosala was, was brought into the condition. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, so that's a very important distinction. Another is that uh, with Kosala's story, we, we don't get what uh, classical slave narratives bring us in terms of this heroic voice that is triumphant and that, uh, you know, is all about freedom and, and, and freeing others who were still enslaved. Uh, Kosala's story is less about, about freedom in America than it is about uh, a longing to return to his, his origins uh, in West Africa. And it's not so much a triumphant voice in the sense of, of what, say, we find in, in a narrative like that of Frederick Douglass. So we get another another side of the story, another experience of the story, and we get a lot of agony in terms of what happens to a human being when that human being is deracinated, uprooted from her or his home. Just what that means and how how fragmented uh, a life can become when one is uprooted, torn from one's village, from one's uh, the continent on which one lives, and is forced to leave everything one knows. That's a, that's a story, it brings us to, to an understanding about just how terrorizing that is, how traumatic that is, and, this, and it brings this anguish, this pain, this sadness. Um, and even though we can see the resilience in, uh, in Kosala's life, we still see and, and feel and experience the depression that he experienced and, and feel what that did to him his entire life, how we, it questioned his sense of self and who he was, his identity. Uh, one of the aspects of being a human being is that uh, we we have this need to know who we are, this need to know where we belong, and then we get to see, in Kosla's case, what happens to that sense of self when one is so uh, violently, uh, rudely uprooted from one's origins. Yeah, and also the con- the, the confusion and and distress that he feels when he learns that he was freed. I mean, that for me, that was one of the most poignant moments of reading Barracoon. Is that you know he he and his fellow his fellow slaves get told kind of in a, in an almost kind of offhand way that they're freed, and there's this there's this instant confusion and per- perplexity about well. What do we do next? Where where do we go? How do we make how do we make homes for ourselves? It's just it's another kind of cutting. It seemed to me anyway, as a, as a reader, another cutting kind of displacement for him. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know this is part of the angst. This is part of uh, the, the fragmentation. This is an, another 
another level, if you will, of the deracination. And here again, there is a need to figure out what's going on now, what's happening now, what do I do about it now, where do I go uh, from here? And, and it's just, you know, a continuation of the initial uprooting and then here again, to start again, to start again, and to start again. Mm-hmm. And, and this is, you know, and in every case, you know, there is also what is lost along with the starting again. And of course, he uh, and his his uh, compatriots they 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 learn, and this is part of the resilience that they figure it out. You know, uh, the the soldier, the Union soldier, tells us like, well, I don't know where you're gonna go, but you can't stay here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because you're free now, and uh, you you know, best of luck. And nobody pointed him to a Freedmen's Bureau or anything of that nature. So they had to figure out what to do, and they figured out what to do. And they figured out how to do it. The first, one of the first things they wanted to do was, let's figure out how to go back home. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do we get back you know, to West Africa? Uh, that was their, their decision, and then they began to work toward that end. That's not, of course, what unfolded, but uh, that was their initial uh, guiding point to return home. Mm-hmm. Something that's striking about Barracoon is Hurston's insistence throughout her lifetime that if Barracoon were to ever be published, that Kosala's voice would be kept in his vernacular. She wanted his words to appear on the page just as she was hearing them herself as she sat down in these interviews with him. Why do you think that insistence of hers to, to keep his voice in the vernacular was so, in, was so significant and is so significant in how we hear about and read Kosala's story? When we look at language, uh, our linguistic expression, it says so much about who we are, where we are from. It speaks to our history. And the black vernacular is one of the many uh, what we call Atlantic Creoles. And that, that Creolization of language says something about a people, uh, what they've experienced, who they've encountered. Uh, it, it speaks to a certain grammatical structure. It, it, it speaks to certain uh, lexical content that is, you know, the words that are used. And all of that has history in it. All of that says something about who I am, where I'm from, and what has happened to me. And so uh, to maintain that is, is to maintain that aspect of Kosala's identity, to maintain that aspect of his humanity, if you will, to to write the uh, narrative in what we call standard English, I call it the language of the uh, establishment, to write it in that, uh, and that's a, that's a, a dialect too, uh, we don't call it that, but to write it in that dialect is to really speak about another kind of history and origin. It would be inauthentic and one of the things about Hurston and her work is that 
she always endeavored to be authentic about it and to present what was authentic about it. And in terms of uh, the expression of an individual, to in terms of the expression of the black folk in general, then uh, what was authentic about that expression was, you know, definitely uh, apparent in the language. To deny that would be to deny one's one's identity, one's history, one's culture, one's experiences, which ultimately uh, is to deny one's humanity. And uh, that's the very thing she wanted us to feel and experience about Kosala. And one of the things that it seems that Hurston does well throughout Barracoon is that this is a narrative that, although it tells a singular story, um, sort of thinking about the larger connections that it has socially and culturally, is part of it seems to be that to show us our, our common humanity. How well do you think Barracoon shows us this idea of common humanity? I think that Hurston was 100% successful in showing us that. And, you know, just listening to people's responses to uh, Kosla's story, his history, um, it, it's just amazing how people are so touched by it, how they are moved by it, how they identify with him. And, you know, the best measure of that is, is my own experience of the manuscript of reading uh, about Kosla's journey in my research about it uh, and all of that kind of thing. And it's one of the things that come up for me most is, is this notion of how sacred freedom is, how important it is that we recognize that we all have this, this sovereignty uh, of self and that it is our birthright and that this is one of the most precious things about us as human beings and and so to to see how we can deprive one another of that and the horror that that creates you know it, it has to touch us because this is Kosala's experience but in some way on in some level on some level this is also our experience on a day-to-day -day basis. How free are we? Uh, in what ways? Uh, in what way? In what ways do we see that our own freedom is compromised? That our own sovereignty is not respected? And when when it's not, you know, what does that do to us? We see what, you know, radically what what, what this did to to Kosla. Mm -hmm. And even though he was resilient, and God knows that he was, and everyone who was on that ship with him, and everyone who, uh, you know, we, we learn about in terms of uh, the community of African Town, um, we see the resilience. But a lot of times when we, when we focus on uh, someone's resilience after, you know, traumatic, horrifying experiences, we kind of forget the fact that we are also very fragile and and that you know it's it, it doesn't take a whole lot to really disturb a person's sense of self and when you go through horrendous uh kinds of experiences as as Kosla did then we can just imagine how 
how fragmenting that must have been and, and how difficult it was to basically, as they say, hold it together, mm-hmm. you know, which is what he was able to do. But when we can, I myself identify with him and I see myself in him and I see, uh, you know, the whole question of, of freedom and the right to our sovereign reality as, as human beings. When I look at all of that and then it's, I I can identify with that. And so in that sense, I see my common humanity with him and and I believe others too who read him or read about him and talk about him that they they have that same kind of experience. So I just have one more question for you and it's a question that we ask all of the guests on our podcast. Since this is primarily geared toward teachers and their students, who is your favorite teacher? <laughs> That's easy. Uh, my favorite teacher is Gwendolyn Lucy uh, Bailey Evans. Uh, she was uh, one of my professors at Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She she taught French and uh, and I she was just a wonderful teacher who I could talk to about anything. I would often uh, sit in her office do it, you know, before class and, and talk with her, or just sit there. She would just let me sit there and do whatever it is I was doing. Sometimes, don't tell her, but sometimes it was my, you know, doing my, my lesson for, for class uh, that we had to go to next. But in any case, she was my favorite teacher, and she continues to be my favorite teacher. Uh, we stay in touch even to this day, and uh, she was my favorite teacher. That's wonderful. Well, Deb, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. The pleasure has been mine. And on behalf of Zorda Hurston and Kosala, I thank you too.